0: We want to join him in what he is doing. And this morning is this magnificent chapter of the prayer of the Lord Jesus. Um, It's rightly called, this chapter is, the Lord's Prayer. It's the Lord praying. And it's been called various different titles. The Lord's Farewell Prayer, the Lord's High Priestly Prayer. In this passage, we see the Son of God speaking very personally with our Heavenly Father. This conversation that must have been like on other occasions, but this one is at the end of his, towards the end of his earthly life. The cross is the next major event which is coming. It's darkness is descending upon him, and he finds himself turning to his Heavenly Father to pour out his heart to him. A crisis often reveals our character, doesn't it? And so it does here with the Lord Jesus. And in reading this prayer and studying the prayer, you'll see that it'll reveal to us certain priorities that Jesus has, certain concerns that are very close to his heart. So I want to read to you this prayer, it's John 17, and I'll read the whole chapter for its one prayer. And then we'll talk a little bit about the structure of the prayer, but I don't want to talk about that. There's one theme in particular that I want to pick up on and we'll focus there about the glory of God. So let's hear the Lord Jesus speaking to his Father. John 17 verse 1. After Jesus had said this, spoke to the disciples, he looked up towards heaven and he prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I've brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. For I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed my word, your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. They know with certainty that I came from you, and they believe that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture might be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, But I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word and the world has hated them for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you'll take them out of the world but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world... I have sent them into the world for them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified my prayer is not for them alone I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one Father just as you are in me and I am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known know to them, and will continue to make you known, in order that the love that you have for me may be in them, and that I may myself may be in them. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing portion of your word for us to have recorded the Son of God speaking to you. We ask, Lord, that you might um, minister to us your grace through the teaching of your word. That you might open our eyes to understand, that you might move in our hearts, that you might... Convict us and draw us closer to yourself. Challenge us. Develop us. Help us to live lives that are for fulfillment of the prayer of the Lord Jesus. So Lord, speak to us and then unite us, protect us, sanctify us, and use us as ones who are sent by the Lord Jesus himself. Thank you that we can be together. We thank you for your word. And we look to you now to teach and to speak to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, the crisis reveals the character. And so the Lord Jesus, when he is facing the crisis, the the cross, we find him turning automatically, if you like, intentionally and deliberately to his heavenly father in prayer. Didn't panic. Doesn't come up with other sorts of schemes. Just the hour has come. And I need your help. It's this prayer of the Lord Jesus which reveals to us something that some believers in the Lord Jesus wrestle with. You will notice that in the very first paragraph, verses 1 to 5, the Lord Jesus is praying for himself. I often hear it said by particularly new believers and sometimes by older believers that we ought not to pray for ourselves, we ought to pray for others. And they don't mean... Um, I haven't heard this a lot, but I have heard it. They don't mean that we ought to pray for ourselves last. They mean we ought not to pray for ourselves. Which I think... And every time I've been in conversations with that, I point out to the people, that in fact is really quite arrogant. Because you're saying that you don't need God's help. They thought they were being, you know, humble. They just felt wrong. They were being selfish. and They will try not to be. And... Um, Here is this paragraph, is the Lord Jesus providing the model for us? He prays firstly for himself and then he prays for his disciples, his immediate followers and then he prays for those, thirdly, who are going to believe in him through them. There are three paragraphs, he prays for himself, for his current disciples and for future people who will become believers in him. If you look at the prayer carefully then you'll also learn that the Lord Jesus, in terms of his priorities, prays several things for these disciples. He prays that they all be sanctified, that they will be protected both from outsiders but also from internal divisions. He's concerned about that. He prays that they'll have his joy, that he prays that they'll have his word, um, ultimately that he prays that they will experience both his love and their love for each other and their love for the Father. There are about six different qualities or distinctive marks of a believer that the Lord Jesus outlines and That would be a good sermon within itself, I'm sure, but that's not where I'm going to go this morning. Um, I was attracted, really, to the first part of the prayer and to a reoccurring theme, both in this prayer but also in John's Gospel. And it's in the 40s, it's low 40s, but it's 40-something times, this theme of bringing glory to God or the glory of God or the glory of Jesus running through John's Gospel. So it's that theme that I wanted to focus on. Father, the time he's come, he says in verse 1, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Verse 5, now Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world began. God has some glory and the word glory is used in the scriptures in a multitude of ways, but simplifying it down to just two ways. um, He has this I don't know what else to call it, I'll call it a physical glory, though God is spirit, but it has a physical manifestation, it's, it's radiant light, it's the splendour of his being, it's the Shekinah glory of the Old Testament, that sense of God's presence that was bright and overpowering and it's the impact of Moses' face shining because he had been in the presence of God. It's this innate glory that we can't add to or diminish from that's not the glory that we're going to talk about this morning we're going to talk about the second one this first one is a glory that Jesus had with the father before he came to earth it's the glory that he temporarily lays aside and now in this prayer in verse 5 he says that which I laid aside father now through my death and resurrection and my ascension I return to you I'm going to pick up that glory again glorify me with the glory I had with you before the world began. The second way that glory is used in the Scriptures is where our focus will be this morning. It's that glory which is... um, It's to have a good opinion of another. It's to think rightly about them. And because you are thinking rightly about them and you have a good opinion of them, then they are praiseworthy, they are to be honoured, they are to be respected. We do that both in our human relationships, but ultimately we do it, of course, with the Lord. That's where the Bible talks about, ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. That's that dimension of glory um, that Jesus certainly prays about and that we're going to focus upon. What it, of course, ultimately means that right here in the beginning... Uh, of the chapter, Uh, Jesus' focus upon the cross and the cross was really all about the glory of God because it reveals him, it reveals his character, it reveals him to be a God of grace and a God of mercy, that he is one who is therefore worthy of glory, of honour, of praise, that he is tender-hearted, that he is kind, that he is favourably disposed towards us, while at the same time being both just and generous. That's what the cross reveals to us about him, that he's holy without compromise. At the cross, certainly, the Lord Jesus, God, pays our penalty, buys our pardon. But we become too overly concerned for ourselves that we think it's all about us, but it's not. It's all about him. The cross is about the glory of God. It's about revealing him. We certainly benefit from it, but it's not about us. It's about him. The cross is there to reveal who he is, and in the process, it's redeeming lost sinners and bringing them to ourselves. Somebody very cleverly once thought about and wrote a book about a thing called cat and dog theology. Some of you maybe have heard of this or maybe even read it. There is a difference between cats and dogs, you may not have noticed. What's the old, you often see it on bumper stickers on cars? Um, It won't come to me now, but it's it's something about, you know, dogs have masters, cats have servants. servants. There you go. And somebody picking up on that sort of theme was talking about, there is the cat theology which says that when... Um, Jesus died on the cross, the cat thinks, this person thinks, I must be important, look how much he pays for me and how much he loves me. I must be important. Whereas the dog theology is the other way. It's, look how great his love is for me and the grace that he pays for me, I love and serve him. See the difference? One is about, look what he does for me. He loves me, he died for me. I must be very valuable, I must be very important, it's all about me, cat theology. When that's wrong, it's the reverse of that. Look what he pays, look how much he pays for rebels like us, how magnificent and loving and great he is. It's all about him. Do you see the difference? If you don't, then... Maybe you're caught up in cat theology. It always used to trouble me uh, that Romans 3.23, when it defines sin, what is sin? Well, it's to doing wrong things, it's breaking the law of God, it's all those things. But Romans 3.23 doesn't say that. Romans 3.23 says, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's all about the glory of God. And that's what sin ultimately does. It takes us away from glorifying the one who is worthy, the Lord, and it puts the attention on us. Our rebellion and our sin takes... We become glory deniers, and that's what sin is. And so when we repent and become believers and followers of the Lord Jesus, he is in the process of transforming us so that, in fact, we become glorifiers of God. You'll find that's a consistent theme, because again and again, and sometimes perhaps... You know, if you read through the New Testament too quickly, you'll miss it. One Peter chapter four. In the midst of all sorts of instructions that Peter gives about loving one another and being hospitable and using our gifts, verse eleven says, um, "In the midst of using gifts, if anyone speaks, they should do as speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do it with the strength that God uh, God provides." Why? So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. Why should we be loving? Why should we be hospitable? Why should we be using our gifts? Why should we be serving? So that God will be glorified and God will be praised. That's the theme. It's all the way through Ephesians chapter 1. Paul gets caught up with it. Praise be the God and glory of our God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He did this, this and this, he chose us, he adopted us to the praise of his glorious grace. Jesus died, paid the penalty for our sins that we might be for the praise of his glory. The spirit is given to us, we have an inheritance um, and a, a guaranteed deposit to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory and here is Jesus praying, Father the time has come, glorify your son that your Son may glorify you, may honour you. In that second sense, that we may promote the honour of your name and of your character, that people who don't know you, who are in rebellion against you, might be corrected in their thinking, that they might appreciate, that they might adore, that they might have affection for you, that they might submit themselves to you. Why? Because God made us for his glory. He made us for his glory. He made us different for his glory. Didn't make us all the same, he did so deliberately in order that through our diversity he would be glorified, that he is the master. Many, 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 many years ago I used to read a fair bit of Puritan literature and theology and they they still have a very close part in my heart but I don't tend to read them as much these days. Occasionally I dabble. But way back then, when that was all that I used to read, I read one man in particular, Thomas Watson, who's probably the most readable of the Puritans. You can still buy his books today. And in his book, an exposition of the Westminster Confession of Faith, or the Shorter Catechism, he has this magnificent chapter, which I went back to this week, in which he talks about the answer to the question, what is the chief end of man? And the Catechism's answer is... God, to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. It's that first bit, he talks about both but just the first bit for us this morning, to glorify God and I've never found anybody else who does this which is probably why I went back to him, he came up with 20 reasons, 20 ways that we can glorify God. 20 of them. So I've sort of read through that and condensed it down to seven. He repeats himself or he expands his points subtly and there are very subtle differences. And, so, and even in me getting to the seven, there probably still is some overlapping of points. Why should we glorify God? Because he made us and he made us for his glory. That's why Jesus died, in order that we could be redeemed, that we might be God-glorifiers in every part of our life. Here are the seven ways that I've summarised from Thomas Watson of how can we glorify it. I'll take my time as going through these and I'll give you some references. Uh, These are not things that I think I want you to learn and memorise, though that would be helpful. But really I want you to listen and to evaluate as we go, saying, do I do that? Or, yep, I'm okay with, I'm doing that. Or, no, I'm dropping the ball there and I need to focus on that. I need to find out more about that. I need to uh, become a person who is glorifying God in these ways in my life. First way, according to Thomas Watson, is we glorify God best when we aim at his glory. When we're intentional, when we seek to glorify him. That's what Jesus says in John 8.50. I seek the glory of him that sent me, not the glory of people not the applause and notice of others. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. It's our intention and our ambition that we will honour him. It's not only aiming at it, but it's preferring God's glory, God's honour, God getting the attention, rather than us. And that even when that comes through other people, that we're okay with that, because it's not about us. It's about him. So we prefer God's glory above everything else. Human applause, human credit, human thanks, human recognition. Are you living your life that way? Is, or are you finding that you are subtly being pulled by the attractions of the world, that you do things because you want people to notice, you do things because you want recognition, you're doing things because you want people to be noticing and applauding and you know, patting you on the back? And a good way to test that, is that when you were doing things and those things don't happen? When you're not recognised, when you were not thanked, when you don't get the credit for something that you've done, what does that do to you? It might be an insight into, wow, it's very subtle that we do some of these things for ourselves, when really it's not about us. He made us for His glory. And that when we are doing exactly the way, the, living the way that He has made us to live, and remaking us to live then it's all about him he gets the notice number two Watson says we glorify God when we are content with God's will content with God's will that even if that means I go through a period of weakness that's acceptable because he is strong it's not about me that I may lose certain things but that if he gains the glory and the credit we'll come back to this in a moment That we are content to be outshined by others in gifts and esteem so long as God is glorified. That's the attitude of saying, as long as the Lord is the one who is exalted and pleased and um, and glorified, then it doesn't matter who the instrument is. Philippians chapter 1 verse 15, the Apostle Paul is in jail and he says, people are going around and some preach Christ out of supporting me and my ministry some preach Christ out of envy while Paul is locked up and he can't do anything they're out enthusiastically evangelizing in the city of Philippi and they're doing it because they're competing against Paul they wanted to compare their results to his results Paul says Philippians 1:15. well while they might be doing it for wrong motives it's not important either way Jesus is being preached in that I rejoice it's about it's about him Churches can do that, can't we? The church down the road is doing better than we're doing. Well, that's wonderful. The church up on the hill has exploded with growth. They've got a new building program and they've multiplied multitudes of times. Fantastic. It's not about us. It's not about us competing or vice versa. That many churches around us look at us and they are jealous and sometimes critical. Look at the property that we've got. Well, we didn't do it. God used us and used people before us. But the Lord has provided for us a wonderful property. And many churches wish they had, and have said so to me, wish we had what you've got. And then they become critical. But what are you doing with it? If we had it. (laughs) Human nature and sinfulness is so subtle, isn't it? When it's all about glorifying Him. We glorify God by being content with His will, with whatever He portions out for us. Number three, we glorify God by believing and by trusting in Him. Unbelief is an affront to Him. 1 John 5.10 Unbelief is saying, you're a liar, I don't trust you. You said this, but I'm not believing you, I'm not trusting you. Whereas believing him, trusting him, shows that we have a very good opinion of him. That he is trustworthy, that he is reliable. That we take him at his word. Lord, you said, and I believe that. The whole world might say something different, but I believe that. Of course, I'm making an assumption that when I say I believe that, I am believing and assuming that I am reading your word correctly. Next Sunday night, I get to do a talk on uh, homosexuality, about same-sex marriage, about how do you witness to people who are uh, gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender, how do you witness to those uh, faithfully but without compromising and without being harsh or judgmental? How do you do that? Well, we have to stand and we have to... His Word says. And though the whole world goes against you, you can't compromise. You still have to say lovingly but but truthfully what God says in His Word. Correct? It's not about us. It's about Him. And just to give you a sneak preview... It's not so much what we say, it's the way we say it which is the problem. And that we've lost credibility because we have, some of us, have appeared too harsh and too judgmental and too naive in the way that we've read the scriptures. So we need to do that better. But anyway, that's next Sunday night. You can't compromise what he says. He expects us to believe him. I believe what you say, Lord, regardless of what the world says. And that honours him. That glorifies him. We glorify him, number four, by our fruitfulness. John 15, verse 8. It's exactly what Jesus said. Or John or Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men so that people may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Live the life. Be consistent. Be forth, bring forth the fruit that... Um, He is wanting to grow in you. Um, Number number that was number four, fruitfulness. Number five, um, by living for God. Now that's similar to this one about good works. We don't live for ourselves, but we live for Him who died for us. Um, We should be a people who are just ready to serve, that we are wholly available to Him. We glorify Him by our availability and by our service to him at work, at home, in the family, glorifying him by the way we live. Alexander the Great was a great conqueror in the ancient world, came to a king in a city and the city was all shut up and locked up and all secure and whichever city it was, whether it was the Parthians or somebody else, I forget and Alexander sent a message inviting the king of the city to surrender The king sent back rather proudly and strongly, why should I surrender to you? The walls are impenetrable, you cannot get in, and we have supplies in here that will last us for years and years and years. We are secure and safe and you can't do anything. To which Alexander sends back the message. He says, watch this. He then commands his army to line up, and there's a cliff not far from wherever the city is built. And he commands his army to forward march, and they do. And as they march, they march over the edge of the cliff, After about half a dozen men have gone over the cliff, Alexander commands them to stop. And he sends back a message and he simply says to the king, that's why. That's why you should surrender to me. My men are totally loyal to me and they'll do whatever I want them to do and they will be unrelentless. You may be locked up, but I will get in eventually. These men will obey me to that level. What honour to Alexander the king did those soldiers give him Full-on obedience, march straight ahead, no questions. A stupid thing to do, but testing their obedience. So too for us. Our God is much greater than Alexander the Great, but he has made us and we're part of his army, if you will. And if he commands us to march forward over a cliff, if he asks us to lay down our life for him in some situation, to get on a plane and fly to South America and meet Indians for the first time and to be killed immediately... He's the one in charge. We glorify him by believing him, by loving him and by obeying him. Doing exactly what he wants us to be doing. So how's your obedience? Is that up to date? That brings honour and glory to him, just like our disobedience dishonours him. Thomas Watson uses this one, I'm not sure if I've um, said, alluded to this or not. By being content in the providence where we find ourselves... We glorify his wisdom when we rest satisfied in what he carves out for us. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4.13 talks about, I've learned the secret to being content in all situations, whether I've got a lot, whether I've got little, content. Because I'm trusting him. God has put me here in this situation. He could change it whenever he wants to. It's not my purpose to murmur and complain. It's my purpose to trust and love him. He comes during the week, it's appropriate that he comes on Sundays. (laughs) They often do, we leave the front door open and they come bouncing in and, worst story, but just to show you that these are Baptist magpies. (laughs) We walked around, when it first started we know what's sort of like shooing them out, now we just ignore them and uh, they'll greet you in the car park and all sorts of things. Anyway, this bird flew around, and he flew full pelt faster than that. And he came round the corner, and he went straight out that door, which was shut. (laughs) Bang! (laughs) Feet in the air, beak open, and we said, "He's dead." So we picked him up, we put him outside, and then we went to get some paper or something to wrap him up in. When we came back, was gone. Resurrection. (laughs) True story, not about resurrection, but true story about the bird. Um, For those who are counting the service, count him. That was an extra one that we had this morning. We glorify God, number six, by evangelism. By promoting his salvation, emphasising his grace and his mercy, honouring him in the process, that certainly honours him. And because evangelism also brings other people into instruments of glorifying him. We glorify him by evangelism, by telling other people about the Lord Jesus so that they might come to believe, but even also telling ourselves the gospel, that when we have the Lord's Supper, that when we sing songs, that when we're in church listening and praising him, listening, and, and by giving money we are... Part and parcel of something, some great movement that he has done. It's all for him. It's all glory to him. We glorify God by evangelism. And associated with that is we glorify God certainly by being zealous for his name, by living a holy life, the outflowing of the gospel in our lives. Peter says, 1 Peter 2.9, that you are a holy nation to show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his light or for his glory. By being zealous for his name, by standing up for his truth. And number seven, finally, we glorify God by praising him. Psalm 50 verse 23, whoever offers praise glorifies me. Or the psalmist, all the way through the psalms and Ephesians and Colossians, that I will praise you, O Lord, and I will glorify your name, is the refrain often of the psalms. Somebody once said, probably Watson or quoting somebody else, he says, In prayer, when we pray, we are like just ordinary men. But in praise, we are like the angels who stand to praise and honour God in heaven's choir. It's the exact opposite of murmuring and discontent and complaining and all those things. Honouring God through evangelism. So here are the seven. We honour God when we aim for it and seek it. This is for your honour and glory. We honour God by being content, accepting God's will and his providence in our life. We honour God by believing and trusting him. We honour God by bearing fruit, good works in our lives. We honour God by living for him. We honour God through evangelism and we honour God Ultimately, through praise. We should be like diamonds and magnets. Diamonds and magnets. Diamonds that shine and are attractive. And magnets which are attracting others, drawing others in. Diamonds and magnets. For his honour. For his glory. So, application. Application. A couple of quick things. God made us and he made us for his glory. He made us with our differences and with our gifts and so on for his glory. And God has put within us some capacity to do exactly that. He is the one who gives us our health or our sicknesses. He is the one who gives us our talents. He is the one who gives us our estates. He is the one who gives us our successes and our incomes. Parable of the talents. Remember that? A person gave, an owner once gave five talents to one person, two talents to one person and one talent to another person. And I just read, I don't know, a couple of weeks ago, you should think of a talent as about a million dollars over a year's wages. A million dollars. Gave this guy five million dollars. Gave this guy two million and that guy one million. Then obviously the point of the parable is, what did you do with what I've given you? Well, they doubled it and used it, both of those two, but this guy did nothing with it. He buried it and he was held to account and treated accordingly, punished, rejected, removed. God made us for his glory. has given us talents and health and our estates, our homes and our possessions, our incomes... He's given it for our enjoyment, for our use. But he's given it for us to use for his glory, for him. So this is a warning to anybody who robs God of glory. That they take it all just for themselves, like the last guy in the talent. He buried it. Deuteronomy 8 verse 18 says that he is the one who enables us to make success. Why do some people just, whatever they do, whatever they invest in, they just make money and other people do it and lose money? God's wired them differently. The Bible certainly says that under those circumstances, there is a God who is working His purposes out. It's not accidental and it's not just flukes and it's not just, oh, they're like that. No, it's how God made them. And God made them to make money in order that they could give a lot of money to honour Him. But you see, that's the danger You can make a lot of money and stick it in your bank account and keep it for yourself. And you're not doing anything about it for him. You'll be held to account. It's a warning to people who are robbing God of glory. He made us for his glory. It's a warning to those people who do these things in order to be seen by people, that they blow the trumpet when they give. They want to be admired, they want to be noticed, they want to be glorified. They'll so be held to account too. We need to make sure that we, are lot of people, like that. Thirdly, if our chief end is to glorify God, the Father, the Son and the Spirit, then it is not our purpose to get great estates and to lay up treasures on earth. We are not to spend our time gathering straw, so to speak. The Lord Jesus says very firmly, what does it profit anyone if they gain the whole world but lose their soul?" Now please don't mishear me, I am not saying that you should quit your job, you should serve God full time and you should trust God to provide. Not saying that at all. What I am saying is that in your job, glorify God. Work as hard as you can, do the best you can, make as much money as you can for His glory. For His glory. In our society, particularly our Western privileged society, Our missionaries are not simply those we send cross-culturally. Our missionaries are our business people who are on the front line of business and making the ability to make great deals of money and then to use that for kingdom purposes. It could have been John Wesley, uh, it could be a whole stack of people, but Rick Warren is the one that came to my mind that he wrote a book which is incredibly successful, Purpose Driven Life. And if you've never read it, then I encourage you to read it. And out of that, I don't know how many millions, he sold 40 plus million copies of it. So now he is a millionaire and he makes, I assume, I don't know what his royalties are, but I assume it's in the millions each year, money coming in. He very wisely, with his wife Kay, they said, this is our standard of living. They kept the same house, they keep the same truck, the same cars that they've got, same clothes, they didn't change anything. And all this money's coming in and he gives away something like 95% of it to mission or to causes to promote the kingdom. Now here is a person whom God has blessed incredibly and given a great deal of financial resources to. It's a test. What are you going to do with it? Well, he is one who is very clearly using it for God's glory, God's purposes. Now, I'm not saying empty your bank accounts. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is, think about it, though. Pick the standard of living where you're going to be comfortable with Figure out where that is and if you're not there yet, well then that's okay, work hard to improve and get there. But when you get there, when you've got your standard of living that you're happy with, then think very seriously about what you have in excess of that and what you're going to do with it. God is not wanting us to abandon all that and give it all away, sell everything we have and go give it to the poor. Though there are some people He will call to do that. But for most of us, He won't. For most of us, he will say, I give you this for your enjoyment and for your satisfaction. I'm also giving it to you, I'm trusting you with it, that you will use it to honour me, that you will use it to advance my purposes. So let us be people like that. Select your standard of living, be content with that, and then give as generously as you can. Adopt a compassion child. Support a missionary. Give certainly to the local church. I don't want to draw any attention to this except to mention it because we mentioned in the business meeting last week. But somebody in our church last weekend or the weekend before, recently, gave a substantial gift which took our budget from being at the 87% mark throughout the year, which is about eight weeks below budget, to being about 3% above budget. A substantial gift, given anonymously and so not given for them to get any glory, given for God's purposes, given for what He wants to do. And God's going to um, certainly bless that person, but God gets the glory through all of that and through what happens with it. So let all of us make it our way to glorify God. And as Augustine said that when Jesus comes, I hope he finds me either preaching or praying. Uh, So for us, when the Lord Jesus comes, may he find us faithful, serving him, being God-centered and God-honoring in our work, in our family, in our life, and in our doctrines. This will be great comfort to us when we come to the end of our life. Just like the Lord Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth, I've finished the job you gave me to do. We exist now in the land of the dying. We are proceeding to the land of the living, where it will all be for his glory. We are being tested Let's live for his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for Jesus, thank you for the plan of salvation and thank you that in your sovereignty you're the one who made us, you're the one who shaped us, you're the one who has gifted us, you're the one who has provided for us and supplied us all for your glory. Lord, help us to be not just wise stewards, but faithful and good stewards of our lives, our talents, and our time. Help us to aim and seek your glory all the days of our life. Help us to trust you and thereby to honour you. Lord, forgive us for complaining. Help us to be content accepting of your providences and of your will for our lives. Bring forth fruit in us that you might be glorified. Help us to evangelise that you might be glorified. And Lord, receive the praises of our lips that you might be glorified. We ask this, Father, for you, for the Son and for the Spirit. All glory to you, you triune God, in Jesus' name. Amen.